Hello, you're listening to SOAS Radio Research Forum. In this episode, we'll be exploring Islamic identities. As a part of the wider vision of decolonizing our attitudes and approaches, SOAS academics often work with voices in the fields of literature, art, theater, and film. In this episode, Professor Alison Scott Bauman, Associate Director of Impact and Engagement at SOAS, speaks to Dr. Amina Yakin and author Naomi Foyle about their collaborative approach to portrayals of Muslim women in fiction. Amina Yakin is an international scholar, media commenter, and occasional columnist. Her published research and public engagement on themes of Muslim representation, multiculturalism, and Islamophobia is committed to breaking barriers by generating dialogue and enabling access and inclusivity across different communities, groups, and genders. Her work has been reviewed as groundbreaking and cutting edge in the Times Higher Education. She is a reader in post-colonial studies at SOAS. Naomi Foyle is an award-winning poet, essayist, and science fiction novelist. Naomi is senior lecturer in creative writing at the University of Chichester and a fellow of the Muslim Institute. Her eco-science fantasy quartet, The Gaia Chronicles, is informed by her interfaith activism for a just peace in Israel and Palestine, and her reading of ancient Sumerian myths. everybody. I'm joined today by two eminent women academics, Dr. Amina Yakin, reader in post-colonial studies at SOAS, and Dr. Naomi Foyle, senior lecturer at the University of Chichester. The reason why we're bringing these two amazing women together, it's the day after International Women's Day that we're actually doing the recording, but never mind about timing. The relationship is one which spreads beyond the intellectual and the literary. So Amina generated academic work, which then inspired Naomi in her writing. And we will hear a lot about that today and about the reciprocity between their two ways of thinking and approaching the world which faces us today. So Amina, may I ask you to begin by talking a little bit about your amazing impact case study? Thank you, Alison. It's very good to be here and in your company and Naomi's uh, to be able to talk about this work, which goes back to a almost feels like an earlier time in history from where we were in a post 9-11 context to the time we are in now of populist politics. And um, the work that is connected to this impact case study is that of Islamic identities and specifically the identity of women in relation to stereotyping and representation. And I looked at it through the context of Muslim dolls, a lifestyle doll called uh, Razan. She was known as the Islamic Barbie at the time that she became quite popular. And uh, she was sold through the internet website called Nurat. She was the inspiration of a couple in the US. And I think it's very interesting to think about their background at this moment in time as well. Amar and Nur Sade were the, were the couple behind the idea and they he was a Palestinian immigrant and she was a concert pianist who was a convert to Islam. And they were the kind of creators of this Muslim doll. And 
you know, that very context of migrancy, of identity is embedded in, in the work of this construct. And it was also at a time where Muslim stereotypes were being really quite normalized in the media. I mean, they have historically, they have been normalized. We know over it, it's sort of a conversation that dates back to the Crusades. We can talk about the Ottoman Empire. We can talk about uh, the sort of various ways in which things have, have kind of developed historically, but I'm kind of looking at that post 9-11 moment through which this work and study got inspired because we were in a moment where suddenly it became really all about Muslims being terrorists. So the, the work that then, you know, I wanted to do of unpacking Muslim women's identity particularly was, well, let's think about this, this kind of recognition, this framing that's all the time happening because of a visual kind of image of, a, of this person in a hijab. And you could literally at that moment in time, turn off the television news reports if you were watching them and you could tell what they would be about because there would be a picture of a minaret, there would be a woman wearing a hijab, and there would be a man praying, you know, that those would be your visual stereotypes of this is kind of Islam and Muslims in Britain. And then there would be some sort of darkened pictures and imagery, etc. So in, in that kind of culture, uh, this really a transnational doll. I found her quite inspirational in terms of the marketing strategy that was being used around Razan and a kind of mimicry. She was mimicking a very iconic doll, the Barbie doll. You know, we all recognize her, know her, the blue-eyed, blonde-haired, curvaceous kind of bombshell uh, that occupies the lives of girls, many girls <laughs> across the world. And Razan is a mimicry of that doll but she's a modest doll. She represents that Muslim woman who retains her cultural values while living in the West, in a West where Muslim values are under attack. And I mean, the market, you've also got to think of this company. They were creating an alter, they were tapping into an alternative Muslim niche market because Muslims felt at that moment in time as a global community, as an ummah, you know, regardless of the groupings you come from, what community belongings you have, there are lots of diversities we know and disagreements within Muslim communities. But within that, you know, you've got this kind of real anger at the way you're being framed all the time in terms of your identification and regard wherever you are. And so this, this company then, a small company, tapped into this potential market of 8 million Muslims existing in North America and the consumer kind of ethic of brand buying to utilize a niche market of ethnic minority and Muslim buyers. And they really, they were a company that got a boost after 9-11 from buyers who were finding themselves increasingly at odds with American foreign policy. And they wanted to distance themselves from that policy after those events. And that kind of renewed nationalism, clash of civilization, etc., meant that this was a way of asserting identity claims, you know, in uh, through Muslim products and identifying through a community on the internet. I mean, of course, the internet has evolved significantly since then. And we have, you know, Twitter storms and we have um, lots of different types of media. Like I said, the politics of populism is now played out on the internet. So that's where the conversation has changed quite a lot from when I wrote about it. And Muslim dolls, 
when I started sort of in, interrogating this, I found that this was not really something that was only part of this, this the work of this couple in America. It was that they've also been marketed in the Middle East. You've got Iranian dolls, you've got Assyrian Fuller doll. And it was also the, the kind of conversation, the dialogic interaction with Barbie was very interesting and how this was being used as an ideological toy, really. And you get this kind of way of talking about within Muslim countries. So there's a different relationship to dolls, to Islamic dolls within Muslim countries, and there's another doll. But the commonplace thing is this is a Western doll and Western values are really now sort of discriminating against our values and what are our values. So there was uh, Islamic Barbie and Razan and Fuller. I mean, I'm calling her Islamic Barbie, but Razan really fed into that public imagination of Muslim stereotypes, reconfirming the popular perception that Muslim values cannot be integrated with the demands of secular modernity. And you might remember in 2002, there was the Shabina Begum case in the UK, 13-year-old British Muslim girl who was suspended from the Denby High School for ignoring the school uniform code and she was continuing to wear a hijab. There were legal proceedings that, you know, it went back and forth. There was an appeal, it went to the EU, there was the link with Hizbut Tahrir and the really sartorial kind of play over this Western values took place over this women's dress and the politicization of the veil became the big kind of, it's, it's always been there in the background, but it became really amplified. And I mean, Alison, we're here today and in Switzerland, right, we've had the referendum supporting the ban on the burqa and the niqab, 51.2% over 48.8%. And we see in France, Marine Le Pen and the politics of populism that utilize the politics of the veil and the burqa ban and the, and the hijab again being used as a way to really to to gain votes and power and in politics and to to differentiate against the other and and it kind of really is is a huge way of sort of confirming difference and so i think what what this group did it was very clever because they did kind of cap an iconic doll and turn it around and use that ideology to inform their work. And then how I read it was, of course, through gender and performativity. And, and, you know, here's a doll who teaches you how to be a Muslim at home. She teaches you how to behave when you're outside in a Western country. You know, you still have to be modest. And we've seen modest fashion. I mean, my God, that's a huge kind of industry in itself, Muslim modest fashion. So there's so many things that have evolved uh, over time. Time, but that doesn't stop the media or the popular press from saying Muslim women oppression. That is the main difference. You know, that is where our secular values will always be different to Islamic religious values, and never the twain shall meet. Again, you know, I'm not saying that uh, there are not problems within Muslim nations and are not problems within Muslim communities, but. If you continuously frame a group in a community and recognize them through that model, what kind of politics emerges out of that with regards to recognition, identification, multiculturalism, something that I've looked at in my work. And I've, you know, I've extended this work further, looking at the model of Islamic feminism and, and things like that. But dolls, young children, the ideology and how this plays out. Um, Barbie is a doll who's with desire. You know, she's something everybody wants. Razan is, she has a, you know, 
preteen body. She's got a sensible attitude. She's a very sensible doll. She's not frivolous. She's got accessories, but they're kind of tied to religious conformity. She has a prayer rug. You know, she has a backpack. She has a laptop. She can be a teacher. She can be useful to society. And um, she's got really, the message was she helps Muslim girls understand that in home, they can be the ultimate fashion statement. But outside, they, they are kind of modest. That's a brilliant start because you've established for us this, the unreality, if you like, the anti-realism of Barbie with her curves, her improbable curves, and then that being customised in a completely different way by, by Muslim entrepreneurs and turned into a really interesting, strong statement for little girls and you know, pre-teens who, are, who happen to be Muslim. And that's a fascinating use of the anti-realism of Barbie with her big blonde hair um, into something really quite useful, which is domestically as well as politically quite fun. Now, I want to, we'd like, I'd like to hear more about that a little bit later, Amina, but perhaps if I could bring in Naomi to consider how, you, how this triggered you in some work that you were already doing, but maybe it complemented your thinking in important ways. Thank you, Alison, and thank you, Amina, as well, for the invitation to join you all at SOAS. So I met Amina in, I think, 2014, and at that point, I had already been working for about five years as a human rights activist around Palestinian-Israeli uh, issues. Uh, so I was triggered to become a campaigner by Operation Cast Lead in 2008-2009, that period of the turn of the year. And the following year, I had gone to Cairo to participate in the Gaza Freedom March, uh, which was intended to take place in Gaza, but in fact did not, mainly did not arrive there. Only a few people were eventually allowed to go on buses to Gaza, the Palestinians and the journalists and everyone else, the internationals there, maybe 1,400 of us stayed and demonstrated in Cairo. And after that, I came back to the UK, fired up to try and campaign from where I am, from my identity, if you like, as a British Canadian writer, poet, academic. So I co-founded British Writers in Support of Palestine, which uh, promoted the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. Uh, it's now been superseded by Artists for Palestine UK, uh, but so it exists uh, as an archive website. And through that, I became uh, you know, aware and connected with many British writers and of all backgrounds uh, who were committed to, to the boycott. And we ran quite successful letter writing campaigns to The Guardian, for example, that drew on generated international dialogue in, in The Guardian on the issue of, of boycott. One of those writers was the late Professor Bart Moore Gilbert, also a dear friend of Amina and her partner. And we met uh, at the launch of his memoir, The Setting Sun. So becoming aware, meeting Amina very briefly and becoming aware of her interests, I took the liberty uh, a little while later of asking her for some advice on some writing I was doing at the time. So I asked her in a sense to be a sensitivity reader around stereotypes uh, in my own work. And I offered to pay her or to uh, a consultancy fee or to perhaps do a swap because I, I knew she was interested in poetry. So we, we did the swap. Um, I'm going to read some work from the second volume of 
the Gaia Chronicles, which is an eco-feminist science fantasy quartet set in a post-fossil fuel parallel Mesopotamia that I started writing in about 2013, drawing on all the research and travel that I'd done around my Middle Eastern interests and activism. I started this knowing that I was treading into, you know, unknown territory for me. But at the same time, I felt I had been doing this research for about four or five years. Uh, I knew a lot of people who were enthusiastic Palestinians and also uh, some British Jews, for example, felt that they would be interested in, in, in how these novels played out and were encouraged me, invited me to festivals to read from them, for example. So I felt that this was this was something that I felt called to do because I felt that it was a way, it is a method of research, it is a way for me to learn more about this conflict, the British role in this conflict, the, the main character in in the series Astra. I very quickly realized, even though she's a girl growing up in uh, in this Mesopotamian sort of environment landscape, she was very much related to my own identity as a Canadian, as a British Canadian, growing up as a settler colonial, for example. I felt that by placing all of this in a parallel world, I wasn't trying to, to write directly to these conflicts, but I was trying to create a metaphorical resonance uh, within the series. But as the series went on and I was the cast became wider and I was trying to take in all the great diversity of my characters, I, you know, I really did want to tread very carefully and get feedback and always feel like I was going along uh, on this path in concert with the people that I was trying to in- represent. So Amina was very gracious in doing that work for me and was reassuring that my character Una Diani, who was the leader of a refugee camp, didn't she felt actually portrayed quite interesting uh, sense of female leadership and we struck up a friendship, Amina and I, and have continued corresponding since. As I think it was a great springboard for me because one of the things that Amina really got me to think about was, you know, the and, and that her work also gets me to think about is what what a Muslim identity really is, is it's a faith, it's a relationship to to God. Um, so one of the things that she said to me, which just seems very obvious and simple, was that, well, if you have a Muslim character, they will be praying. And that just sent me off, you know, just it was so liberating. And and it felt like it grounded all of those characters, really. And in the end, my series, The Gaia Chronicles, has come quite, it's almost like a very long spiritual poem. I think of it um, as a hymn to human diversity. I, I represent many religions in and cultures and ethnicities in the book. And I try to imagine people living together, working together. I try to imagine new forms of democracy, uh, restorative justice, for example. I feel like my work is feminist in that regard, in that it's, it's, you know, contemporary science fiction tends to be feminist in dystopian ways. Uh, and I actually did get to the point of, of utopia by the final book, it's Stained Light, and I actually tried to make it an Islamic utopia in the Institute of Metaphysical Engineering, which is an educational institute that strives to balance reason and spirituality in terms of creating technology that rebalances us with the earth and enables us to to cohabit more peacefully and respectfully. And all of this was also part of a journey that I was taking with the Muslim Institute, uh, who has published many of my essays in their journal, Critical Muslim. So it's all been a very beautiful and organic process. Uh, And in terms of stereotyping, I find it you have to ground you have to ground your characters in 
in the world. And so inevitably, no one character can be everything, you know, so you could be open to charges of, of stereotyping simply by having to narrow a character down. The way to avoid, I think, that charge is to avoid the tokenism and avoid simply, you know, bringing in one character to represent a whole religion or, or culture. So as a result, I've, I've got this panoply of characters, really. So I have, you know, at least three women who wear, you know, wear a headdress, a turban or a hijab, and they have a different different relationships with it. Una, Una tends to wear her turban as a kind of a symbol of power, whereas there's a student at the Institute of Metaphysical Engineering who considers her hijab a, a calm cap. So uh, another student has developed a calm cap, which, you know, plugs in and alters your brainwaves and, you know, and gives you a sense of serenity. And, and Mona says she doesn't need it because she has a hijab. And and yeah, and then there are other characters who, who will not wear who will not wear hijab as well, but will be clearly be be faithful and religious. So I've found it, you know, I found it quite a. It's it's been, a, as I say, a very beautiful process, and I'm really grateful to Amina for her her role in encouraging me. That penultimate point you made about creating characters who represent more than one thing. I've just been doing some work on Jean-Paul Sartre and Iris Murdoch because Iris Murdoch was very critical of Sartre because of his tendency to create characters represented one dilemma you know one was an ardent marxist one was a one was a disillusioned marxist for example similar to you iris murdoch's argument of course was this is not feasible this is not practical and it doesn't is not maybe it, it can be didactic in such a, a blunt way that it bails completely and obviously you're you're aligned perhaps more with her concept of i suppose like shakespeare creating free characters characters who who one knows could actually exist beyond the pages of your work because they're not predictable and they are multifaceted. Thank you. I hope so. But I felt with Una, Una, she's flawed because she's, you know, she does have power and she wants to hold on to it, and she she can be quite quite self centered. But then you you imagine people who are come leaders of whole nations, you know, do want to hold on to power. So she does, in a sense, there is an element where she's corruptible, but but she's also at the same time very very passionate and. Naomi, you've given us an amazing picture of these multifaceted groupings, the, uh, the sort of white middle class environmentalists, the refugee camp with Una, Diana in charge, and sparkling over them all perhaps is Astra, the young heroine. I wanted now perhaps to return to Armina. It's a sort of rec- recursive loop, if you like, to ask you, Armina, if there are other aspects of your work, which of course resonates very well with mine as well, but we're not talking about that today. Other aspects of your work that that um, resonate with the way in which Naomi uses unreality. You know, for example, the anti-realism of surveillance culture, the way governments the world over are encouraging their population to believe that they must be suspicious of people who might look different to them. And it's quite crude, but it actually works quite effectively. And it creates this anti-realism, which precludes the capacity for, for, for people to, to, to have mutual recognition, to understand each other's identities and to move forward together. I wondered if you'd like to talk about that briefly. Sure. Thanks, Alison. That's a very philosophic and deep question that takes me in, makes me think of, of a kind of lot of things. So I will try and answer it in, in kind of, by first returning to Naomi's work, if I may, and to say that I think that unreality of, and also the reality of of the uh, genre fiction that 
Naomi's using science fiction context was very interesting to me because it was, in a sense, I mean, something that I was interested in when I was growing up in Pakistan and reading science fiction as a young adult was something that that was very um, exciting and opened up new worlds and new ways of thinking and imagining yourself in, in kind of these utopias, actually, that were not available. And Naomi's world of as- with Astra and other characters and the maps and the connection, uh, as she's talked about, with the Middle East and the peace process, Israel and Palestine and, and the Council of New Continents that is described in the in the book, you know, in a sense, and the non-landers and the Island, if I'm, I'm pro- yeah, Islanders, yeah, correctly, yeah, and the climate crisis and, and the bus bombs and lots of things that happen that are very connected to what was what is going on in our world and and that sense of how do we you know in, in this kind of science fictional world which is also quite marked by surveillance and and a need to move out of those map makings that are because I think I was trying to think of what the dedication not the dedication page but the opening page is to Naomi's book. It was just that quote from Isabel Eberhardt that you have, Naomi, homesickness is the great enchanter that animates all phantoms. And that's very evocative when we think about that sense of home that is so central to what people are trying to make sense of in this whole equation that we're talking about, identity and identification and surveillance culture. And it is about belonging. And we were looking at it theoretically through social identity theory, as well as framing, uh, the notion of framing, uh, building on the work of different kind of thinkers. And uh, it was really, you know, different levels at play over there from coming from a post-colonial lens to think through that you know, and, and to think, yeah, we, you know, we are in a space where we can't really move out of these debates that we've got into with regards to identity politics. And so what can be a new way of thinking about this? So, so the, the framing paradigm opened that up. And the, I've, I've talked about the fetish of the veil, really, that comes to light through the context of Razan and how I broke that down. But then to go to your your point, Alison, about the surveillance context, because the next next path that we went on to from where Naomi's work was taking me as well and connecting me more with young adults, that world of young adults, you know, how were they responding and how were they connecting with this culture of suspicion and surveillance and of non-recognition and of framing that they're growing up in? And so one of the two of the things that we broached in our book, Framing Muslims, uh, when we that I wrote with Peter, co-wrote with Peter, we talked about multiculturalism. And uh, we also talked, we didn't talk about trust, uh, and we didn't talk about Islamophobia. So those were the two things that we then went on to look at 
that after that. And we also looked at the concept of trust because we really philosophically, we felt that what was the really the issue here amongst and across communities was that issue of trust, which affects society at all sorts of levels. And then, then there was the prevent strategy, uh, the prevent duty that came about. You know, it came about, I remember attending a community cohesion training workshop and listening to the story of a lecturer being radicalized and not noticed in a university environment and how to kind of recognize the signs of that. And then, you know, it kind of snowballed into the prevent duty and I've and, and surveillance culture and, and police presence and safeguarding and lots of kind of things in terms of the misrecognition of especially Muslim communities within that. I mean, recently we've had the misrecognition, for example, of a self-appointed, well, of a government-appointed Muslim group. So the Muslim Council of Britain, which has been in the news because of the appointment of the first female uh, leader of the group, Zara Muhammad, and then her interview on Women's Hour with Emma Barnett, and then the whole kind of fracas that has erupted over that because of the questions that were repeated to her about the kind of position of female imams, and then the context of how she, how the interviewer, Emma Barnett, was already interpreting the Muslimness of the person in question and the positionality of women within that. And therefore, it wasn't really an open format. I mean, I think she did excellently. She did the interview very well. And the Muslim Council of Britain is, is you know, I'm not saying that that's a group that is easy to kind of understand. And we write about it at length in our book in terms of how they were set up by Labour under Tony Blair and then the kind of issues they've had with the recognition and lack of recognition. So you've got recognition that happens at that kind of official government level. Then you've got the recognition layers that kind of feed down at community levels. And what we were really interested in unpacking was what's happening on the ground at the community level work. How are people responding to this kind of top-down way of thinking? And so when we did the Trust Project, we were very interested in um, local community groups that we engaged with, such as a Muslim Jewish theatre group called Muju. There was also an arts-led group called um, Love and Etiquette, and then there was uh, Interfaith Choir. So, and they were all working at community level, creating connections across and between communities to try and deconstruct this self and other divide that is constantly being put up and being and the message that they're being given. You know, these groups can never coexist. The idea of coexistence, you know, and we go back to Andalusia and, and think about sort of philosophic models that are available to us. So what we found in that work was that community level at community level, at the kind of grassroots level, people People and young people, you know, particularly are passionate about connecting with each other and they're using sort of the arts as a good way of thinking through this. But then at the policy level, you know, there's a very cut and dried model that is applied, which then reinforces mistrust of communities and mistrust amongst especially young Muslim communities. I mean, we found that, for example, the Muslims Trust and Cultural Dialogue Project, which which was funded by the RCUK, that we also had to justify our own existence in terms of our work 
between and across communities. And we we did sort of work with Muslim groups as well, and a variety of non-spoke to non-Muslim groups as well. But it's about establishing that trust, you know, that's at the very heart of the matter. And funding becomes a huge concern and a question. And, you know, when we did Framing Muslims first, we we traveled to America at the time and did some some talks that were very uh, kindly kind of uh, coordinated with Professor Indipal Gruel at, Gruel at the time, who was at UC Irvine, and uh, it was through the transnational network. And we were questioned over there about our funding, which was from the Arts and Humanities Research Council to say, well, how and and you know, there's a very strained relationship over there because of of sort of certain levels of lobbying and what uh, what is happening in the UK right now in terms of the divide over let's say anti-Semitism and Islamophobia was, was um, something that was in place over there a long time before. But what, what struck us at the time was that we were questioned quite a lot about our funding and where it came from. And we hadn't really thought about it because really we didn't, at that time, there was not, you know, Prevent was not in existence uh, when we had that funding and it was independent. And we felt that there was a certain amount of kind of distance between research funding and the state and the work that we do within. So that gave us a level of autonomy and we felt very confident in that autonomy. And we felt that we were doing autonomous work. And this was work that I was passionate about, Peter was passionate about, because we really, you know, felt this is no, this is not the future. You know, this is not the future of multiculturalism. This is not the future of of this, of Britain and of, of kind of just generally globally of how we were thinking about citizenship and identity and identities and social identities. So then, but you know, it things change so much, don't they, Alison? And you you will have seen that. And and then we got the funding in twenty. I can't remember the exact date. Later, much later, after prevent the prevent duty is in place and stuff. And we did do um, a consultation where where you came as well and spoke very eloquently and contributed from the floor in with your rich work as uh, that is part of you know that uh, important um, critique of prevent and why it doesn't work as a model and and what are the changes and what are the kind of well fractiousness that are that is created from it in the education in the higher education environment and the the linkages to lots and lots of kind of things that we can talk about so for us that was a real kind of turning point I think that work and that project and we we still you know, I, I've I've still got kind of the book to the co-authored book to write. Peter and I are working on that, and we wrote uh, contest. We co-edited contesting Islamophobia because uh, we wanted to write to kind of produce a book which wasn't just about saying this is Islamophobia and this is the world that we live in. We were like, well, what is there beyond that? You know, how can we think beyond this framework? And we had some excellent work and in there, but we also had that engagement that we've always had with the media and the critique of popular culture to say, what are the models that it keeps reproducing of framing and of representation and of stereotyping that keep, you know, keep 
keep us in the circular world where Muslim identification never really is able to move out of the frame. And the unframing, I mean, we've talked about comedy and stereotyping. There's been a lot of work that has been done and people have, have put out much more since that. But yeah, so so I think that the trust question, and it was really a huge learning curve for me. We worked with people. Um, I had the opportunity to you know speak with Professor Rowan Williams, former Can- uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, and to hear about his kind of philosophy and idea that the kind of question of moral and ethical trust and also with Professor Honor O'Neill and her work with the kind of Equalities Commission at the time. Uh, I mean, I won't even talk about the Equalities Commission right now and where we are with regards to, to the politics of our contemporary, you know, government and where where we're heading in terms of, of the kind of trust issue. But these people opened up these intellectuals and thinkers and, you know, working with grassroots organizations and also people who'd been involved in policy making and, you know, com- conversations with people like Naomi, who were writing young adult fiction with yourself. So all these different avenues really opened up a world of thinking of all the work that is countering this I- way of identification that is now the norm through surveillance. But what is, you know, where do we go next? And this is clearly more work needs to be done. So there's more homework for me to do. And there's more work for all of us to do in terms of taking this forward. And, and it just, you know, it, it just breaks my heart when I have to read yet another interview around, you know, the recognition of Muslim women through veiling or through honor or, you know, it, it's not to say that those things don't exist and those things don't matter. But can we just move out of that two-tone dialogue? You know, so so the so the last point to finish off the point is really uh, of your question is we were trying to uh, work out a cultural dialogue model. You know, how does one get to cultural dialogue? What is you know how do we build community? How do we build consensus? How do we work out disagreements in a way that we can learn to talk with each other where we're not sort of you know in this in this world now in the social media world where we have to do virtue signaling, where we have to do shouting down of each other and say, well, no, you said that and I'll say this. And, and it, you know, it's not a dialogue. It's it's kind of these monologues. And we're living in this world of monologues. And it's about really trying to recreate that sort of period of dialogue again. And I think so. So these engagements with all the, the different people who I've encountered through the Framing Muslims work and the Muslims Trust and Cultural Dialogue work, I mean, has really been quite phenomenal in, in terms of making me think about new directions and what is the answer? You know, where do we find that answer to that question of Muslims Trust and Cultural Dialogue? And and so it's, it's really something that I think needs further work, a lot mm. more work. Yeah, no, I completely agree that was a that was a fantastic summary of I mean obviously it's impossible to do justice to your work in such a short time but it's lovely to have a review like that because I've been following your work for years Amina it's it's great to be to have a refreshment of it it's wonderful also hearing you talk makes me think about the fact maybe the the whole shimmerer the the horror of 
of right-wing populism is something that we need to grasp and turn it into left-wing populism or just populism generally, the fact that the people can talk, people can have a voice. But you're right that in order to do that, we have to step away from the binaries created by the people like Schmidt in the Second World War, who supported the idea of a state of exception, as we know, where a state will put itself into extreme measures because it can argue that there is great danger. And then, of course, it just keeps the extreme measures in place. And Agamben pointed to this, but Schmidt was shameless. Schmidt also supported decisionism, the fact that, you know, a leader needs to be strong by showing that he can make decisions, even if they're the wrong decisions. It doesn't really matter. And I won't draw any parallels with what's happening to us currently in this country, but I think they're fairly clear. This also makes me think, going back to you, two questions for you, Naomi. One is to ask you if your if the architecture of your novels has provided a place for you to create a critique of, for example, a politics of decisionism or the idea of the state of exception. That kind of suggestion that the unreality of science fiction can often show us more clearly the reality that we're having to live through. But the other question is that I'm wondering whether at the core of your work, there is a personal depth which you have given very kindly given me permission to ask you whether this is the case. You mentioned Operation Cast Lead. Of course, depending on who you are, you might call that Operation Cast Lead. You might call it the Gaza War, the Gaza Massacre, 2008-9. And I wonder if you could come to that after you've told us a little bit about the whether there is an architectural structure within your novels that critiques modern political behaviour. Oh, yes, thank you. Um, my mind is spinning because really, yes, absolutely, science fiction, especially its dystopian aspects, function as a kind of early warning signal, how things can, bad as they are, can get far worse and how also, yeah, the best intentions can lead to hellish hellish outcomes. So in the case of the Gaians living in Island, although initially when we meet them, they seem utopian, they're living in Eden, literally living nude in Eden. They're vegan. They care for every last worm in the ground. Their animals have pensions, you know, they're retired. But as we go on through the novel, we see the sinister side to this. And very much that's a case of surveillance because in the case of really all utopias, you know, in order to enforce utopian behavior, there needs to be a very kind of strong sense of social force at play, political force. So this happens through recordings. It also happens through implants. So as a rite of passage in Islam, children are branded in their genitals, which is a quite shocking thing that happens in the book. And it certainly didn't feel to me when I was writing it that I was writing YA. But I do know that some teenagers do like my books. And I think that ultimately, they're not seeing anything in the books that they don't you know, see far worse. Uh, on social media. And for me, that was, although it has uncomfortable echoes of FGM, to me it was about the hypocrisy of Western feminism, where other cultures are deemed to be, you know, indulging these backward, you know, practices, which, you know, absolutely practices may need to evolve and change. But the idea that Western feminists are in a position to shape fingers, you know, is um, when we've got so much to, to sort out here, uh, is, is really, at, was at the heart of what I was trying to do there because what happens there is that it's a tattoo and it's this kind of the sense of what well, we brand ourselves visually. Um, and by doing that, we do put ourselves in these silos and we make ourselves vulnerable as well politically. And in this case, it's it's because the, the brand, the tattoo is, is also implant, can be implanted with a tracking device. Um, so that's what happens to Astra 
her later on. So by book two, this total surveillance nature of her um, apparently idyllic society is, is completely revealed and she has to go into exile. In terms of my personal life, yes, I did want to address this because I feel that, you know, I do feel very sensitive to questions of cultural appropriation. I take those questions very seriously. For myself, though, I grew up in an interracial family due to adoption. My sister is ethnically Chinese. We lived in Hong Kong. She was adopted there. And then through her son and also through my brother's now adopted children, we have a very blended family. So this idea of coexistence is actually really key to my identity ever since I can remember, really, because obviously growing up with my sister, I saw very close the effects of racism on her. Of course, my sister experienced racism growing up, and I saw how hurtful that was. So it has really motivated me to be an anti-racist and also to try and envision a world in which we can move beyond racism. Why, why can't we move beyond racism? It's, it's stupid. All it really takes, I think, is for enough people to see that and say that. And we saw that with Black Lives Matter last year, that when enough people actually just do get out uh, on the street and demand change, we can see change happen. And there will be backlash. It will be a struggle. Nothing will happen overnight. But I wanted to dramatize that in the books as well. So uh, the books are very much about people who choose to become politically active uh, and get involved in all the complications of that and all the sacrifice of that, the difficulty of that, sacrificing in terms of your family, in terms of personal life, perhaps even in freedom. You know, there's, the last book is largely set, set in a jail. It does come from my own sense of my identity as I would I would like it to be. I would like to feel I had an identity as someone who was trying to make the world a better place. Uh, and in the books, I've tried to dramatize people doing that and show the contradictions of that um, and not certainly not put myself on a pedestal for doing that. But at least I think to, to try and convey a sense that it is possible, that you know, progress is possible. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a marvellous a marvellous way to draw our discussion to a close. It's been absolutely incredible talking to you both. I think it's so humbling to hear you both talking so freely and so clearly about interracial issues, about racism, about the ways in which we really need to use all the instruments at our disposal, including, obviously, powerful literature like yours, Naomi, and including also, of course, powerful academic exploration like yours, um, which also get, works into the literature and the and the arts. We need to use those elements to to uh, to grasp agency again. I mean, what's interesting about the right wing populist debates is that they simply they they funnel everything down into one pointless issue like free speech, and then we get trapped there and we have to climb out of it. I'm spending a lot of my intellectual career at the moment climbing out of the free speech box that we've been dropped into and offering alternative, positive agency. And I think both of you are wonderful examples of that. And I thank you thank you both so much for your time. And I hope that you will, as I think you promised to do, continue to work together as, as time passes. And we need you more and more, both of you. Thank you, Amina. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you, Alison. Thank you, Alison. <laughs> thank you, Amina, too. Pleasure. Thank you, Naomi. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ceres Research Roundtable. To find out more, check out the links in the description. And for other episodes, check out the SoundCloud playlist.